And it'll be helpful just to see the text for yourself as we walk through uh, these 18 verses and look at a few others as well. Hour-long television mystery, they pretty much have the same you know, routine, uh, the same script. The, the beginning of the show is, is some kind of opening scene where something unusual happens. Maybe something, some precious work of art is stolen. Maybe there's some kind of secret exchange of information. Uh, maybe there's a mysterious accident. Maybe there's a, a gunshot and then a car speeds away. Um, but you're left with saying some, something happened, and fortunately for you as the viewer, they send in the CSI team, and the CSI team comes in, and for the rest of the hour, they unpack and sort of unfold clues so that you're, you come to this undeniable conclusion of what took place in the opening scene. And I guess it wouldn't be very compelling television if they gave you the answer to the opening scene, the answer to the mystery in the opening scene. You wouldn't watch the rest of the show. And so they leave that to uh, the very end. But that's not the pattern that John uses in his gospel. Uh, John, according to the gospel of John, 2000 years ago, something very unusual happened, to say the least. God, in a very unique way, stepped into our world. The eternal being squeezed into our timeline. God, who is a spirit, which we talked about in our affirmation, took on flesh. God, who is a spirit, took on flesh. He walked around the country of Palestine. He he did miracles. He ate fish. He took a nap. He had a common name. His name was Jesus And it's important as you're thinking about this reality, especially if you've grown up in a church and all of this language is familiar to you. You just you just sort of hear that and you just think, well, yeah, 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 that's that's right. Let's kind of move on. And why it's so important is when you're talking to someone and you're going to be talking to more and more people who don't have any familiarity with the Bible When you look at them and say, here's what John is going to tell us. John's going to tell us that God came to the planet. He fit into a body. He took a nap. He got tired. I mean, think about how extraordinary that sounds. If you've grown up and it's sort of in your DNA, you just accept it. It doesn't sound very unusual to you. But try, when you're talking to some, someone, understand from their perspective how extraordinary what you're saying is, how difficult it may be, be, be to believe. Because you can come across as saying, well, just anyone would believe this. Really? God came to the planet. God inhabited a human body. God, God died for my sin. Those are very unusual things. So you just need to stop and ponder for yourself. Ponder anew uh, of what has actually taken place in the gospel. Well, John, the eyewitness, the writer of the gospel, was an eyewitness to this extraordinary event. And he writes about what he saw. And he doesn't 
do what the TV mystery writers do. He decides right up front to give you the answer to the question. The big question out there for us, for the folks that lived in the New Testament, was who is Jesus? That's the question that you have to answer for yourself. It's the question that you have to answer when you're talking to somebody else. Well, who is this person? Lots of people have opinions, and John's an eyewitness, and he's going to tell you right up front, this is who I think Jesus is. And so that's how he unfolds his gospel. In the first 18 verses, in a very condensed, very dense, very powerful way, in these opening 18 verses, he tries the best he can to say, I want you to know right up front as the writer, I'm giving you the answer to the big question. The big question is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And then from chapter 1, verse 19, to all the way to the end of chapter 20, then he unfolds or unpacks his evidence. And then at the end of chapter 20, he basically asks you, the reader, so now what do you think? And as I'm walking people through the Gospel of John, that's what I'm doing. I'm saying, hey, here's what I want you to know about the first 18 verses. The first 18 verses, the author is telling you, here's his answer to the big question. And he's going to just plunge you into the deep end in these first 18 verses. But then he's going to back up, and in verse 19, all the way through to the end of chapter 20, he's just going to bring you into this waiting pool, and he's just going to expose you to one event after another, one intersection, one reaction that people had to Jesus over the next 20 chapters. And then you're left at the end of the book to answer the question, well, what do you think? So, so have that in your mind. That's a helpful outline. John is telling you who he thinks Jesus is. Then he's unpacking it. He's helping you see that people had different reactions. Not everyone came to the same conclusion John came to. Not everyone's going to come to the same conclusion that you come to. And so he just walks you through and says, hey, here's somebody's encounter with Jesus. Here are the kinds of questions they ask. Here's how they reacted to him. And you'll find yourself saying, I understand that. I would ask that kind of question. I would have that kind of reaction. And then finally he says, well, you've seen what the author thinks. You've seen how different people have reacted. Now the question is, who do you think Jesus is? And so that's really the question for us in the Gospel of John and also here this morning. When we look at these first 18 verses, a couple of important observations. Think of, think of yourself in, in this these first 18 verses as, as entering into the, the foyer of a house. Or as, as one commentator said, think of yourself standing on the edge of a very still pond. And here in the first 18 verses, the, the author, John, drops in some rocks on this very still pond. And you know what will happen. These ripples will begin to ripple across the the, the landscape of the pond, and they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until they cover the whole length of the pond. And that's what John, the author, is doing. He's, he's dropping in these very important stones that he doesn't qualify in every case. But he is, over the next 20 chapters, he's going to expand on these themes. And you could pick these out if you just looked at them this afternoon. The word life is used frequently here in verse 4. In him was life. 
And then John uses that word 36 more times in his letter. Verse 4, he uses the word light, which John follows up with 23 times. Verse 14, he uses the word truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth, which is used 25 times in the letter. In verse 10, he uses the word world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, which John uses 78 times in the letter. And then in verse 12, he uses the word believe, which is used 98 times in the letter. So you just get a sense. You just, you're just getting a sense saying, hey, these are the themes. This is what this author is going to unpack. We're going to see it expand. He's not going to say everything he could say about it in these first few verses. Let me just read a passage from you that gives you a sense. John 3:16, which is probably the most famous of all Bible verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, believe stands condemned already because he has not believed. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness instead of the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. You see, all those themes are expanded here in chapter three. And you'll see that John's just telling you he's just you're stepping into the foyer and you're going to see these themes project out over the course of the gospel. The second thing to note is, although there aren't a lot of direct quotes from the Old Testament in John, it's like it's just saturated. It's like John is a sponge and it's and John has soaked up all of the Old Testament. And especially when you're talking to somebody who's not familiar with the Bible, they're not going to see the connections. And it's helpful for you to see some of the connections and point them out to them because they're not going to make sense. And we'll talk more about that specifically when we talk about the titles that Jesus has given in the first chapter next week. But just notice it here in, the, in the, these first opening verses. Verse 1. In the beginning. Well, everybody knows, if you've read your Bible, where that comes from. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. So just this opening phrase, John saying, hey, I'm importing information from the past. I'm going to tell you something else about the beginning. And John, every time, takes this Old Testament idea, and he's going to expand on it. And so Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then John is going to say, no, 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 that's true, but there was really a beginning before that beginning. There was someone before the beginning of the earth, and that someone was God. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Greek word dwelt among us is the word tabernacle or tent. And so the sort of the common idea is that we're all living in tents And God came in and he just pitched a tent right in the middle of us. And he said, hey, I'm just going to move into your neighborhood. Is that okay? Where's some space? And that's exactly what happens in the Old Testament. You remember the people of God have come out of Egypt and they're supposed to build this tabernacle. And it says in Exodus 25, God says to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me. I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Then a cloud covered the tent of meeting or covered the tabernacle. 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much that Moses could not enter because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See what John's going to do? He's not just going to expand the idea of God moving in. He's going to explode the idea. You see, Moses couldn't even see the glory of God. And John's saying, the glory of God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, and he dwelt among us. He pitched his tent. But guess what, Moses? It's different now. You can go look at him face to face. You can shake his hand. You can have a meal with him. And this was just exploding the idea of what we'd seen in the Old Testament. John does so well to give us a bigger idea. Verse 17 The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, here's a tendency that we want to avoid. We don't want to drive a wedge in verse 17. We don't want to say the law was given through Moses or the law was given through Moses. Then there's a big wedge. There's a big space. And then not in the law, not in Moses. We saw grace and truth through Jesus. Listen to Exodus 34. Moses chiseled out two stone tablets. What are those going to be for? The law. Exodus 34. And he went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning and he carried these two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his own name, Yahweh. I think that's fascinating. I'd love to do a whole sermon on it, but I won't right now. Just the Lord came and what did he say? He just said his name, Yahweh. I mean, I'm, I have arrived. And then he has to inform what he's going to be like to Moses. I want you to know this about myself. The Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the one who is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. You see, you can see grace and truth in the law. Grace and truth has always been a part of God's character. But now we're going to see in the person of Christ a greater grace and an expanded grace, something that you wouldn't possibly you could possibly believe. And where is that grace? Where are we going to see it best? In the cross. No one would have ever believed God would have come to the planet. If they could have believed it, they wouldn't have believed that God would have allowed himself to die on the cross. And so John chapter 1 verse 16, look at your text. What does it say? The fullness of him who came is like, and it's like John doesn't even, he doesn't, what do you say when you've already used the word grace? You've already picked the best term. What do you do? Well, it's grace upon grace. I mean, I don't have another word. You get the feeling of this? Hey, you got to see God's grace from Genesis chapter 3 on. Because when Adam and Eve, representing us, fell, what should have happened? The end. So God was exhibiting grace all the way through. But now a much greater grace is coming. And has come. And the only way I can describe it to you is, it's just grace on grace. I'm expanding our idea, John says, of who God is. And you learn it from the Old Testament. The, the reason that's important, and I certainly wouldn't unpack all of that in a conversation with somebody when I'm trying to go through five chapters in one sitting. 
But it's just helpful for you to understand there's not two different Bible stories. There's not the Old Testament Bible story and then glad we're not back there. We're in the New Testament. But so often that's how it gets translated. There's there's one giant story for you or who are in literature. It's called a there's one meta narrative. There's one large story happening from the beginning of the Bible to the very end. It's one complete story. And when you communicate that, you want to communicate that to your friends. What's happening in the Old Testament is just like a shadow of the reality of the New Testament. And when you come across a term like next week, we'll see in John chapter one, when John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you don't know what it means in the Old Testament, you have no idea what he's talking about. But when you go back and say, here's the Old Testament picture of that, it's just a shadow, and this is the reality. So all of the Old Testament shadows are found in the reality of the cross and of Jesus Christ. And so it's helpful to know that we'll come across that all through the chapters, and I'll point those out to you where we have time. Well, what does John say about Jesus in these opening verses? Let's just read some of them again. Verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own did not his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not born, not people who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Just in reading that again. John starts at the deep end. John is trying to describe who God is. And, and he says, hey, at the very beginning, what I want to do is before you take your first swimming lesson, I want to plunge you into the deep end. We're going to get to the wading pool. We're going to get there because John understands in verse 19, chapter 1, he's going to say, hey, okay, before you drown, let's go back to the wading pool. And let's just bring you to the deep end. But in the beginning, it's like he wants you to say, it wants you to feel his passion for Christ. That hey, there there's a, a depth here. There there's something so marvelous here that you'll never get bored of it. It's not just a story. It's not just some information. We're going to go into a theological deep end that you'll never be tired of learning about through all eternity. When John is trying to describe Jesus, especially in these opening verses, he's not pulling out his wallet and saying, hey, here's a picture of my grandmother. He's saying, here's a picture of God in the flesh. And I can give you a lot of descriptions of my grandmother that will make sense. But when I start trying to describe God in the flesh, 
you should anticipate that, you know, he's probably not going to always be making sense to me. I'm not always going to get it. I have a very limited ability to understand. And so John uses things like life and light and darkness and stuff that you and I can Understand, But just understand that as you get into it and somebody asks you a question, you may say, this is, this is the best vocabulary I have. I understand that I can't make it maybe more clear. I'm doing my best. But when you just try to describe God with human, the human English language, you're very narrow in your ability to do so. And John understands that. In the beginning was the word. The most important thing to know about the word is found in verse 14. And that is that the word became flesh. This is way of John saying the word was Jesus. And so then I'm thinking, okay, but why, why is he using the word word? Why doesn't he say in the beginning was Jesus? And, and again, he's trying to help you say, God's word had been doing things in the Old Testament. And now you're going to see the the personification of that word. So what is it that God's word did in the Old Testament that we would begin to anticipate this person doing? God's word created things. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by his breath, the breath of his mouth, all the starry hosts. So the word was the creator the word was the revealer. He reveals himself to his people through his word. Jeremiah 1, 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So it creates, it reveals, and it saves. Psalm 107, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them he rescued them from the grave so so when you see this word word you know that god's word has been active it's been active in creation it's been active in revelation it's been active in salvation and so when john says the word you'd say well i'm expecting this new word to have a lot of those same character qualities i'm expecting jesus to be a creator i need him to make me a new what creation i need to, him to reveal things to me that i cannot see about myself or about my world and i need him to save me from the grave all the things the word had been doing before john uses it in john 1 1 the word was with god and the word was god just let that sink in The word was with God and the word was God. This is a limitation that we have. Jesus is God. Yet Jesus has a separate personality than God. He can be God and he can also be with God at the same time. Jesus is God and yet he has a relationship with God. Jesus is God, and yet he's the visible expression of the invisible God. I love the way Leon Morris put it in his great commentary on John. The word and God are not identical, yet they are one. Okay, great, Leon. 
But do you see, you understand? C.S. Lewis, I said, think, said something like this. It's the simple religions that you know aren't true. Because if you just could explain it simply and you say, here, let me explain God simply to you. You just know that's not true. Because if you're trying to describe you as a limited, you know, being, trying to describe the internal being of God, that's going to be difficult. It's why in John chapter 14, Jesus says to one of his disciples, remember, this is the, we're closing in on the last few days of Jesus' life. And Philip, one of his disciples, says this to Jesus. Jesus, if you could just show us the Father. Is there any way you can show us God? I mean, you seem to be a person who has some unique access. Can, can you show us God? If you could show us God, then we'd be okay. And Jesus looks at Philip. I'm just wondering Jesus' emotions here after three years. Have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Why, why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That's why Jesus could use that language. Now, if you talk to enough people, and it won't take too many, somebody's going to say, you know, uh, can you explain to me in like 60 seconds how Jesus can be with God and God? Can you unpack that for me? I just have just a couple minutes to hear about that. I mean, that, that, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to be fishing for vocabulary. You're going to... Be challenged by how to express this. And, and of course, then you're going you're gonna to step into the real deep end when you say, well, Christianity has this understanding of God as the Trinity. Oh, really? What's that? Can you explain that to me in 60 seconds? And you're like, I'm, I'm getting deeper and deeper in the deep end here. And then you have to say, you know, let me work on that. I'll get back to you next week. You know, it's just difficult sometimes to explain. But I think one of the, the healthiest reasons or the healthiest ways to see the Trinity is that God is already in a relationship with himself. The idea of relationships came from, it emanated from God. He didn't need to create something to then begin to have a relationship. He had a relationship in himself. And so when you would hear this language, I have a personal relationship with God. How can you have a personal relationship with God? Most world religions don't think of God as relational. God is some kind of force. God in the Bible is not a cosmic force. He's, he's a person. And you can have a relationship with him. And one of the best analogies for that is used in the New Testament frequently and in the Old Testament is, is, is like a marriage. And what happens when you have two people up here and, and I'm the minister and I say they're now man and wife? What, what does the Bible use for that terminology? These two people have become what? One flesh. Hold, hold on. Two people become one flesh? Yeah. Paul, thankfully, the Apostle Paul says, hey, this is a mystery. Okay. I feel good if the Apostle Paul says it's a mystery then I'm not going to be have to unpack it all. But that's, that's the depth. That's the deep end. And we'll see more about that as, as John doesn't unpack it for us all right here in these opening verses. 
All things were made through Jesus. Verse 3. And to, to sort of emphasize it, to say it another way around, without him, nothing was made. The Apostle Paul, Colossians 1.16, For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, so Jesus wasn't created. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... If you have your Jehovah's Witness friend in front of you and they open their Bible, they say the word was a God. God created Jesus. Then Jesus created everything else. That's a huge, huge difference. And so John's trying to help us right here without looking at the Greek, which would be helpful to answer that question. He's trying to emphasize everything was made through Jesus there nothing was made that wasn't made through Jesus Jesus himself was not made he is eternal finally in Jesus there is life and light verse 4 right up front John is is saying some difficult things some true things but they're going to become difficult if they don't become difficult in this first conversation with your friends. In other words, if you know Jesus, you have life. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have life. If you know Jesus, you walk in the light. If you don't know Jesus, you walk in darkness. And he understands that there's going to be a tension in that right up front. He's trying to give it to you right up front. Notice just in John, John says it later, as Jesus says it in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So, so there's going to be two options. If you follow Jesus, you have light, you have life. If you don't follow Jesus, it's death and darkness. That's, that's a challenge for our culture. It's going to be a challenge in your conversation with people. How is it possible that it's just one of these two? That's the way the Bible rolls. And you have to, you have to understand it. You have to be able to stand for that because that's what Jesus said about himself. And John understands it. Look in verse 10. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. Jesus came to his own creation and his own creation rejected him. But anyone who would receive him, anyone who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. That's he's setting that up. These are the the two ways Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 12, verse 37. John chapter 12, verse 37. This is the end of the um, three years of ministry for Jesus. John chapter 12 through verse 30, at 37. He's done all these miracles, and look what it says. Though he had done so many signs... 
before them, they still not did they still did not believe in him. So John is telling you right up front, this is who I think Jesus is. Then he walks you through three years of miracles. And at the end of the three years, some people looked at him and said, yeah, I still don't believe. When you walk somebody through, some are going to say, you know, I still don't believe. Verse 46, same chapter. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light and whoever believes in me, he may not remain in darkness. So Jesus understands there's some people who are going to accept, some people who are going to reject. Look with me in John chapter 20. Verse 28. This is the very end of the book. Chapter 21 is, is an, like an epilogue to the book. John's getting down to saying, hey, I believe Jesus is God. What do you think? That's verse 30 and 31. But just notice right before, what's the very last event before the end of the gospel, really? Thomas, the big skeptic. And he sees Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. You, you are God in the flesh. And Jesus looked at Thomas and says, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet had, have believed. See, see, you're going to be confronted with the question, who is Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? When Jesus came in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the whole crowd looked at him and many of them said, who, who is this? When Jesus stood at the boat and he calmed the waters, the disciples looked at Jesus and said, who who is this? When Jesus heals a man and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees look at Jesus and say, "Who, who are you? So that's that's the question John asks. That's the question you have to answer. Who is Jesus? Depending on your answer is going to make a difference for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, this is the this is the very deepest end of the pool. I'm so thankful for John chapter one, verse 19. That you understand where we are in our minds and our understanding and you begin really at a very easy, tender spot and you you walk us through. But you are deeper than any sounding could possibly measure. And so, Heavenly Father, as we as we all jump in this together. To help us to see what we haven't seen. For, for those who are here who are trying to process the question, who is Jesus? May, may they hold on. May they hear their answers unfold as, as you do so well in the gospel. Lord, would you help us understand who you are better? May it be reflected in our lives in a more meaningful way. 
May you take our time. May you take our talents and use them for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.